Some years ago, I, was, I read a book uh, by an author called David Wells. The title of the book was The Courage to be Protestant. That's a good title to read over the 12th holidays, isn't it? And it, it was a critique of the evangelical landscape. And it's still very much relevant. What he said was very much relevant to today. It was a call for people, for the church, to return to the historic faith. That is, the biblical faith defined in the Reformation, that salvation is by grace alone, and is through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. He says this, it takes no courage to sign up as a Protestant. After all, millions have done so throughout the West. To live by the truths of historic Protestantism, however, is an entirely different matter, and that takes courage in today's context. He says, the truth is that Christianity is leaving the West. Here in the West, Christianity is stagnant. But in places like Africa, Latin America, parts of Asia, and so on, it's burgeoning. The question we all need to ask is why? God seems to be taking his work elsewhere. Is there a lesson lurking somewhere in this story? Well, I have no doubt that there are several lessons to be learned. David Wells uses the word stagnation. Christianity in the West, he says, has become stagnant. It has settled into a degree of inactivity. It's not flowering. It's not rippling with life as it ought to be. It has become passive. Now, the very name that is given to Luke's second book in the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, clearly implies that Christianity is anything but passive. It is about action, the Acts of the Apostles. The infant New Testament church, we know, grew from a handful of Jewish believers. In Acts 1.15, it mentions 120 at the most, and it grew into a movement that swept far beyond the confines of Judea and to set, eventually to set the whole Roman Empire ablaze with faith. Faith and action. Or we might say faith in action, faith and action together. And that's the golden thread that runs throughout this book of the Acts of the Apostles. To those 120 or so, people was entrusted a task that was more than enough to daunt the bravest and the most optimistic of men. And of course, we know what that task was. It was to make disciples and to evangelize the nations for Christ. Now, of Jews alone, at that time, there were an estimated three to four million in Palestine. It was only a little country, 120 miles north to south and about 40 miles west to east. And out of that little country, this insignificant little bunch of ordinary folk were entrusted with winning the world for Christ. Now, we might ask, well, what's the odds on that one? 
And we would say, perhaps, well, no chance at all. It's an impossible task. But then you see, it's not a matter of odds. It's not a question of chance. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faithfulness to the Lord. It's a question of faith in action. You remember that salvation is His great work. Evangelism is essentially and fundamentally the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's a question of, will we have faith in this mighty God? Will we therefore fulfill in faithfulness what He has asked of us? Evangelism is God's work, yes, but He has... It has pleased the Lord to pursue that work through the agency, through the witness of the Christian church. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. Paul was later to say, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth is given to me, so you are to go and make disciples, to evangelize, to preach the gospel, and so they did. To win a hockle for Christ. To conquer this whole district for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the gospel. We're not to be content. We shouldn't be content. We shouldn't rest until every home is a Christian home, until every soul knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. Ah, we say, what's the odds on that one? Well, it's not a question of odds. It's a question of faith. Faith that issues in obedience, in action, faithfulness to the commission of Christ. And we might say at times, well, I'm not up to it. Well, that's absolutely right. We're not up to it. We haven't the power. None of us, or all of us together, we haven't the power to convert one soul to Jesus. But he has. And he says, go in my name. That's it. We are to be witnesses to Christ and to what he can do. Go in my name, the little hymn goes. Go in my name. There's, there's the action. And because you believe, there's the faith. Others will know that I live. All power is given in Jesus' name, in earth and heaven, in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name, I come to you to share his love as he told me to. So we're asked to go as believers in faith and out of love for Christ, love for our neighbor, out of faithfulness to Jesus. And if the Lord opens up the opportunity, as often he does open up opportunities for us out of the blue, to speak for him, to say a word in season, then we're to take it. If the opportunities don't readily come, then we don't give up going in love and faithfulness until the opportunities come our way. Faith in action. And who knows what miracles God will perform? Were we thinking of that? In regard to Philip, go down to Samaria and look what happened. 
Many, many people believed in the gospel that he preached, the good message of Jesus Christ. And then the Spirit told him to go down that desert road, and he met with a single man, an Ethiopian. The minister, the minister in, in the uh, court of the Queen of Ethiopia, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and what, what an outcome that was. That man came to faith and no doubt went back to his own people and shared the good news. Philip was a man on a mission. We were thinking about that. He was a man on a mission to spread the gospel, to preach Christ, to make the name of Jesus known wherever he went. Now, today we've been reading about another man, a man on a mission. And his mission was to obliterate the name of Jesus. Next, chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He had already been doing this in other places, as we are reminded in chapter 8 and verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And now he's turning up the screw on the infant church. He's a man on the mission. He's Saul the Terminator. His mission is to obliterate the Christian church, to reduce the name of Jesus to, to a footnote in history. That at the name of Jesus, people of every tongue and tribe and nation will say, who's Jesus? Many, of course, from every tribe and tongue, nation, after 2,000 years of history, may still ask, who is Jesus? But then there are countless others from every nation who know who Jesus is, who know him. Now, who is Saul? And why is he hell-bent on destroying the witness to Jesus? Saul himself gives his testimony before the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22. He also gives his testimony before King Agrippa in Caesarea in Acts 23. Saul was a native of Cilicia, born in the main city of Cilicia, the city of Tarsus. If you were to have gone north through Palestine, over the mountains of Lebanon, turn west into Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and you're in the Roman province of Cilicia. Tarsus was no mean city, we're told, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 21. It was one of the busiest cosmopolitan commercial centers of the Roman world. That's where Saul grew up. And he grew up in a strict Jewish home. He tells us this himself. He was proud of his genuine, true blue heritage, his Hebrew heritage. Probably at the age of 13, he was sent to Jerusalem. We know he, he was sent there. Probably about the age of 13, to train to be a rabbi. He sat at the feet of one of the most revered teachers in Jewish history, Rabbi Gamaliel. He mentions him in Acts 22. And by the age of around 20, he would have completed his training as a rabbi, equivalent to a university professor. 
more than that, he was a Pharisee, a strict Pharisee. Often in the New Testament Gospels, we meet two groups, very often mentioned together, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were experts in the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, and what the law demanded. When we read the Old Testament law, we find it consists of great broad principles that each individual is left to apply to life. Those principles of life, reverence for God, and so on, that wasn't enough for some, of course. They wanted those principles, those great broad principles, set down in particulars that covered every possible event in life. They turned the law of God and the law of Moses into a burden that was too heavy for people to bear. That's why Jesus said on one occasion, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden. He was referring to the burden of the scribal laws, and the pharisaical laws, the additions to the law of Moses. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The scribes were experts in what the laws demanded. Although it didn't maybe particularly keep it strictly themselves. But the Pharisees, the separated ones, they strove to keep every detail. And this was Saul, a Jew of the purest blood, a rabbi of high education, a strict Pharisee, a passion for the law, devoted to the performance of it in every conceivable detail. And Saul hated the Christian church. And he hated the name of Jesus with a passion. Just when that distaste for the Christian church and for Christ began, we're not quite sure, but it certainly took off when Stephen put his faith in Christ into action. Chapter 6, remember. Paul was among those who heard Stephen. Among those, we are told, from the synagogue from Cilicia, Paul's home place, and Asia. It's most likely that Saul was a rabbi in the synagogue of the Cilicians and those who had come from that area, having heard Stephen preach. And he was there, of course, when Stephen was stoned. And those who did the stoning laid their clothes at the feet of Saul. And that in itself was perhaps an indication that Saul was primarily responsible for the stoning of Stephen. Now, of course, Saul. Saul met with Christ on the road to Damascus. He was going there to pursue to pursue his work. He had, he had letters, official letters from the high priest and, and the council in Jerusalem to do that very thing. This pernicious, blasphemous Christian faith, as he saw it, was spreading at an alarming rate. It filled Jerusalem. It had moved across the Jordan Valley to Damascus. It required a step up 
in the offensive against this new Jesus faith. And Saul was the man to head it up. He did it with enthusiasm and as much venom as he could muster. Saul the Terminator, man on a mission to destroy the church, to obliterate the name of Jesus, to apprehend and arrest every believer that he could find in Damascus. But what do we find? On the road to Damascus, we find a man on a mission who is apprehended himself by Jesus. A man on a mission, arrested by Jesus. He's confronted by the one who said, all authority and all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Saul is the one who is arrested this time by Jesus himself. He's struck down to the ground physically. He's awestruck in himself. He's blinded. And the Lord speaks to him and he says, rise and enter the city. It will be told you what you are to do. And we discover, we're not going into his, uh, uh, the meeting with Ananias. We're not looking at that in detail. But we discover that by verse 28 of this chapter, Acts chapter 9, by verse 28, Saul is back in Jerusalem. And he's proclaiming, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. He had already been doing that in the synagogues in Damascus after he had met with Jesus. Verse 20 of Acts chapter 9. He is declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. Another way of saying Jesus is, is God's Messiah, the promised one, the hoped for one, the one who, who, who would bring us, come as a deliverer, the rescuer of his people. We're told he confounded the Jews in, in, in verse 22. He increased in strength and he confounded the Jews and lived, uh, who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And in verse, verse 26, uh, we're told he's back in Jerusalem and he's preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Paul the Terminator has become Paul the Testifier. Testifying to Christ. Testifying of the gospel. And we say, well, how is this? Well, it is by the grace of God. It is by God's grace. <clears throat> what a changed Paul. What a changed Saul. Was it a vivid experience and encounter on the road to Damascus? Was it that? No, it wasn't that. That's not what changed him. It was grace that changed him. It was a miracle of God's wonderful grace, God's power, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace. That God could arrest a persecutor of Christ and make him a preacher of Christ. That's a miracle of grace. Paul was later to write to the Philippian church, Philippians 1, 20 and 21. He said, it is my eager expectation and hope that now as always I will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Writing to the Corinthian church in the first letter 
in chapter 2 and verse 2, he, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Preaching the death, the atoning death and sacrifice of Jesus the Christ. To the Galatian church in Galatians 6 and 14, far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I crucified to the world. That was his burning ambition now. He who had been a persecutor of Christ, seeking to obliterate the name, is now a preacher of Christ, the world crucified to him. That God should take an enemy of the gospel and make him an exponent of the gospel. That is grace. That is divine power. Writing to the Galatians again in Galatians 1, 6 and 7, he says, I am astonished that you, that is the Galatians, are so quickly turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Some were perverting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, who had been an enemy of that gospel, is now an exponent of the gospel. And he says, dare not have any, any different gospel. You remember to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.14, he says to Timothy, guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. Romans 1 and 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. The persecutor of Christ, now a preacher of Christ. The enemy of the gospel, now an exponent of the gospel. That God should take hold of a sinner and make of him a saint. Paul refers to himself. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. He was so aware of his sinnerhood. I am the chief of sinners, he says. Then in Romans 1, 1 to 4, Paul says, introducing himself in that letter, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart. That's where we get the word saint, sanctified from. A saint for the gospel of God, the gospel concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the grace of God. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He met him in the fullness of love, in the fullness of grace. This man who had been a persecutor of Christ made a preacher of Christ. This man who had been an enemy of the gospel made the greatest exponent of the gospel. This man who realized, knew how deep died a sinner he was, but he's called to be a saint. He's called to be set apart for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God that we worship. That's the God in whose presence we are today. And he's still in the same business today. He can take any of us, no matter who we are, no matter our circumstances, 
no matter where we are in relation to him today, he can take us as we are and he can make us saints for him and for the gospel, set apart for him. Sinners become saints, just like Saul of Tarsus. Let us pray together. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace. We thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It is our prayer that your Holy Spirit will take your word and that you will kindle that faith in all of our hearts today. That for some of us who need reviving, that you will revive that faith in our hearts today. For others, that you will kindle it for the first time and that we will find in Jesus the one who is the answer to all our needs, the Son of God, the Messiah, God's Christ, who has come to give us life. We pray in his name. Amen.